everybody, and welcome back to Catacomb Synod Practicals, the mini-series in the middle of Catacomb Synod Basics, where we're talking about some practical matters. But this week is going to be, well, probably the last upload in this series for a while, because next week, me and the deacons are going to be training in counseling, peer-to-peer -peer counseling, solutions-focused counseling, all that wonderful stuff. And that's not exactly something that can be trained over audio, at least not in a productive way that I've figured out thus far. So we are going to be doing some different audio stuff. We are starting a theology series very, very soon. More importantly, though, we're looking to keep up the amount of content and to keep things fresh. So expect a new series coming out very soon. That said, this week I met up with the deacons. We did our training in the, the special chat room that we have. And we brought up all of the boring stuff that goes into running a house church or even a brick and mortar church. Things that nobody's excited to do, unless they're a specific kind of personality, I suppose. We talked about budgeting. Do you need an annual budget like most companies, most churches, brick and mortar churches, find themselves having to do an annual budget for the church to approve of? And it depends. If you are a single family house church, no, you don't really. Because who runs the budget? The head of household, the father of the house, the husband. He runs the budget. He takes care of the money stuff and maybe has some help from the wife, depending on if she has any talent in that. So you don't really need to run a budget on a house church that's just you and your family if that's the situation you're in. But there are a few house churches in the Catacomb Synod that have about a dozen or so people, and maybe it would be a good idea in such a case to talk about that with your parishioners, with your people. How much money do we expect to be giving to this house church? How do we want to spend it? How are we thinking about the future? For instance, maybe you've got 10 people in your house church, and you want to have it somewhere other than the living room or the kitchen. Maybe somebody could say, well, why don't we build a chapel in somebody's backyard? Let's just build a little chapel, get some pews, get a, a chancel and a nicer altar, and you can budget for that. Of course, everybody there should be making offerings weekly if that's the situation you're in. And then you can do that. And of course, deacons should be paid by their home congregation if it's not just a single family residence, right? Again, I'm not knocking it. We have some guys out there that are just running house church for their wife and children. That's where they're at, and there is nothing wrong with that. In which case, don't do an offering. <laughs> I suppose if you wanted to, you could have your children learn to, to give a little bit. But if you're having them give out of their allowance, I would hope that you give something nice to them with that. But more often the case, it's good to say, all right, our budget for the year is going to include 
some sort of remuneration for the deacon, something hopefully going to the very Lutheran project itself from everybody's tithes, something to help us with our own well-being, right? You want to make sure that all the men in your house church are hopefully gainfully employed. Are you going to need church supplies and books, maybe something to help with Bible studies? If there is something you want to do, it's good to budget for it. But money ends up being kind of contentious, doesn't it? Oh my goodness, can it? So if you, as a deacon or a lay leader in the catacomb synod, don't feel qualified to be touching money, there is nothing wrong with delegating some of that authority to somebody that is good with money. Now, another boring thing that we brought up is preparation time. And what do we mean by this? If you ever go into a brick-and-mortar church and you're running the service, I guarantee you, your first time you are probably going to feel very nervous. You would have 10, 15, 20, maybe even 50 and upwards sets of eyes looking right at you as you're running liturgy, as you're delivering the message, as you're trying to lead these people that you care about, there's a temptation to feel like they're not so much people that you care about so much as you're standing in front of a really big jury making a case. <laughs> and you don't want them to say, oh, that service sucked. I'm not going back to this church anymore. Hopefully, an intimate setting like a house church doesn't include that problem for you. I've noticed a qualitative difference between running a service in my own home for my friends and running it for brick-and-mortar churches. There is definitely a different feeling. But there's still a little bit of that, especially because these people are more likely to know you better than uh, an average parishioner knows his pastor. So they're going to give you feedback, and it's good to do prep for the service. Here's what that might look like. Every Friday, the Very Lutheran Project puts out the Sermon in the Sunday School for the Catacomb Synod. It's good once you're off of work or when you have some free time on Friday to download the PDFs, maybe print them out, mark them up, read everything out loud, and familiarize yourself with it. Uh, one of the deacons in the chat expressed that he never feels the need to do it because the liturgy and the pre-made sermons are pretty plug-and-play, and he's good at just running things from there. More power to a guy like that. For guys like me, though, I typically start about an hour to an hour and a half before the service begins. I make sure that I understand what it is I'm running and preaching, a day or two before, it's nice to have that preparation. Before the service, like I said, showing up and being there for an hour, even maybe 15 minutes if you're swift about it, making sure the space is ready, making sure you're in the right mindset. I'm running worship. We are going to honor the Lord and receive his blessings with absolution, maybe with the Lord's Supper, hearing his word, hearing the word preached to us in the service, and we are going to bring our requests to God. Okay, I need to get in that right 
headspace for it. I know I'm a millennial. I'm going to say the word headspace. <laughs> but it is important for most people, I would say, to do so, especially because it's good and honors God to have a place that's reasonably clean that we can understand. I'm not distracted by socks on the floor. I'm not discouraged by loud sounds happening from somebody running the dishwasher in a home. Having it ready is good for people. It's good for the people that you're taking care of in your house church. So having a little bit of foresight would probably be very good. Again, it's not something that we all think about when we think about church and preaching and Bible studies. But it's part of the mundane reality of serving as a lay leader, a deacon, as a pastor, doing your prep, making sure you are prepared. And so is the space, the atmosphere for worship. Again, maybe you don't have a personality that requires that like mine. Maybe you just have a habitude for just going right in, charging like a bull. Everybody's all ready everything, but I'm still going to recommend it. Now, newsflash for you, there are times in which Christians don't like each other. Shocker, I know, but it is worth also bringing up, and one of my deacons brought this up, interpersonal conflict in the congregation. Now, family churches Family house churches might be a different situation, right? Their conflict is something you're probably going to have to deal with every day, especially if you have more than one child. Uh, sometimes there's conflict between spouses, and you're more or less in a place where you can try to ameliorate that before a Sunday service or when you're making plans for how you're running it. But if you start getting... 10 or 12 people in your house church, or even eight people, and maybe you start having monthly meetings to plan out the future and see where you guys are going, there is a chance that there will be conflict. That you as a deacon or as a lay leader have to run referee for. You've got to deal with it. And there is going to be drama between Christians because we are sinners. We understand that. Sometimes people have an aggressive personality. Other times people just clash in how they want to go about things. You should expect this to happen. And I'm sorry that it will, but more likely than not, it will. Again, family churches, some of them might be exempt, but other ones might have it worse. So how do you deal with interpersonal conflict between congregation members and not yourself. We'll get to the yourself part in a little bit. First and foremost, listen and ask questions. I remember once I was serving with a church where the council president and the church secretary did not get along. They couldn't stand each other. Oh my goodness, it was so bad. It got to the point when there was shouting in council meetings, people walking out, the president up and quit his job at some point. It was really bad. And there wasn't really a reason 
for their disagreements and their accusations being flung from one direction to another until another pastor just kind of showed me how it's done. They were in the same room and he asked them, what started all of this? Why don't you guys like each other? Well, he said this about me. Okay, well, why did you say that about her? Well, she said that about me. Hmm. Okay. Um, why did you say that about him? And this kept going on and going on until he asked them, when did all of that start? And they couldn't provide an answer. They just didn't know. So eventually they kind of learned to get along because there was nothing that explained their animosity. And if there had been some core issue to be addressed, it would be a lot more simple than addressing every single little snipe, every single little crime that each person did to the other. Obviously, I can't give you a full course in peer mediation right now. That's a whole different series in and of itself. If we ever get to counseling as a series, we can talk about it. But a great technique for now is just asking questions and finding what is the root problem or what is the root conflict that started all of it and then maybe suggest a solution that is copacetic for everybody. And if one person is in the wrong, gently let them know. Hey, maybe you need to apologize for that one backhanded compliment you gave her. Or maybe you should apologize for that one time you didn't give him reports, lady, that you should have given him. I know you felt petty that day, but he really took it to heart the same way you took that backhanded compliment to heart. Little things like that tend to form the bulk of rivalries and dissensions within the church. And sometimes they're implacable, right? One person wants green carpet, the other person wants uh, purple carpet, another person wants brown carpet in the church. Is it pews versus chairs? When it comes to a solution that you can't exactly provide, sometimes the solution is, well, tell them to love each other because they are brother and sister in Christ or brothers in Christ, or sisters in Christ. However, it shakes out. Two families that love each other, as Christians ought to do so. I digress. Now, I mentioned conflict in a church setting, whether that's a house church or a brick-and-mortar church, that comes down on you, or is between you and another person. You should be humble as a servant of Jesus Christ. You really should. There is a higher expectation for any sort of minister, especially a pastor and a deacon within Christ's church. Point blank. You need to be a better Christian than other people if you are going to do this job, or at least seek to be better. Right? This is called the Very Lutheran Project because that's what we aim to be, not because that's what we already are. We want to be good Christians. We want to be good Lutherans. We're seeking God and wanting to get closer to him as he sanctifies us. But we do have to admit that we are sinners. So do your best to be humble. If somebody has a problem with you, 
You should be quick to hear, quick to listen before trying to justify any of your behavior. You want to understand why somebody might have a problem with you. And if they're right, if there's something you can correct, then humbly submit, okay, I'll work on that. Maybe you haven't been reading the sermon properly. Maybe you've been sounding a little disinterested in your job. Or maybe there was an issue that somebody was having and it just wasn't being addressed. Right? Let's say in your house church you have a jobs board. You've got a couple guys that have been looking for a job and one of them says, Hey, can I get with you and we can do lunch or something and we can go over my resume. Maybe you can find some place to help me get a job. And you say, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And then you're supposed to meet and then it just totally blanks out of your mind. You forget about it. You don't show up for a week. You don't show up at the other appointment. You don't show up for another week. And he reminds you a couple times and you blow him off. And eventually he loses his patience and says, dude, what is going on? You were supposed to help me out with this. Why aren't you doing that? Do you not like me or something? You should be the first to say, hey, you know what? I'm sorry. That's no excuse just to say I'm sorry. I forgot. That's also no excuse. I'm going to take time right now to help you out. Right? You should be humble as a minister of word and sacrament or of just a minister of sacrament. Whatever your job is in the church, we should be quick to be humble. But that doesn't mean being a doormat. We should be always seeking to improve ourselves. But that doesn't mean that we should let a congregation necessarily walk all over us and be unreasonable. The pastoral office is in a severely denigrated state. People just hate ministers. And even if they go to a church where they love ministers, they will never admit that they hold their ministers to an unreasonable standard. Especially with that one word that gets bandied about over and over and over and over and over and over again. I'm getting sick of hearing it. That word, disqualified. How many times have you heard that some pastor or minister shouldn't be up at that pulpit because he's disqualified? And then you ask what he did. And they either don't have an answer for you or they have some heinous, salacious headline from a discernment ministry that supposedly totally pones them. And that means that, oh, you're disqualified, bud. You shouldn't be there. I hate you now. Oh my goodness, that happens everywhere. And when the discernment ministries got big, there were a lot of people that decided to hold their own pastors in total derision and total suspicion all the time, saying disqualified, disqualified, disqualified. Even for things that those people are guilty of in their own lives, right? It was this great virtue signaling and status signaling frenzy that entered into the church probably around, I don't know, 14 years ago, and it just never kind of went away. Sometimes they say it's, oh, it's fruit checking. We're checking your fruit. And that's why you're disqualified, because I don't like your fruit. Or they'll say, oh, no, no, no. What I'm doing is I'm just, I'm setting the boundaries for the church here, because you're disqualified. What does that look like? What really disqualifies a deacon or a pastor in the church? Well, let's take a look here from 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Oh my, that's quite an expansive list. If we think that any violation of any single one of these automatically disqualifies you for the pastoral office. Let's see here. Above reproach. Whose reproach? The reproach of the world? The world's always going to hate you as a Christian. The world hates Christ. The world hates Christians. So a pastor is never above reproach to the world. Above reproach to the church? Well, wait a second. Who in the church is going to determine whether you are above reproach? Who? Because if somebody doesn't like you, if you're a minister, they're just going to say, oh, that one, pff, he's not above reproach, disqualified. That's what I'm going to say, because I reproach him. <laughs> Therefore, he's wrong. He's gone, fam. Well, that's just silly. It really should be that the pastor seeks to be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Yes. Question for you. If a pastor's wife dies and then he remarries, has he sinned and therefore been become disqualified? No. There are people that'll say that he is. Sober-minded. Sure. Shouldn't be a drunk. Self-controlled. Sure. He should be self-controlled. He should seek that. Respectable. To whom? To whom should he be respectable? Must be respectable. To the congregation, well, if somebody just doesn't like him, if somebody is uh, one of those little tares sowed by the devil, they're not going to respect him. They're going to say, oh, he's not respectable. Um, he is disqualified. Hospitable? Sure. Should be nice. Doesn't mean that he has to be the one managing the entire welcome committee. He doesn't have to bake the cookies, does he? Or, or does he? Able to teach? Good. Pastor should be teaching. That is the teaching office of the church. Not a drunkard? Good. Uh, is a pastor disqualified from office if he drinks a beer? There are many, many people out there that would say that it does. And if a pastor gets caught out in public drinking a beer, a lot of people are going to say, uh, no, gone. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Sure, pastors should not go into violent outbursts hurting people to get what they want. They should be gentle with people, yes. They shouldn't go around picking fights, and they shouldn't be greedy. You're right. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. What happens when they grow up, though? And if they go through a rebellious streak, does the pastor just quit forever? Goodness gracious, how many pastors are left after this list? How many of us are just hosed? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit. Yeah, agreed. 
you should go through your catechesis, you should go through your confirmation, you should go through some sort of theological education before becoming a pastor in order to be qualified. But who determines the time limit there? I'll tell you right now that there is scarcely a single pastor on this entire planet that perfectly fulfills this list. And if you see the qualifications for a pastor here in 1 Timothy as being so stringent that violation of even one of them means you are disqualified from ministry, you've just lost the entire pastorate for any number of reasons. Especially when people try to logic their way into saying, ah, he must have his children submissive, which means that only fathers can be pastors. And, by the way, that means that when little Timmy yells in church, that's a sign that his children are not managed well, and therefore, because we don't like him, we're kicking him out. I'm saying this for your encouragement, because the qualifications for deacons aren't that much different. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. And let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Really? A dignified deacon, a deacon must be dignified. So anything from you not smelling right, maybe you get halitosis, to maybe your, your voice cracks in the middle of a service there and people are irritated by it, or maybe you have a silly hobby, right? You do food fights for fun or something. Uh, that's not dignified, pal. I guess you're unqualified. Not double-tongued. Oh, you said something and forgot about it? No, you didn't forget about it, pal. You lied. Therefore, you're disqualified. Not addicted to much wine. Hmm. How much is too much? Two glasses? Is that too much? Not greedy for dishonest gain. Well, that one's self-explanatory. Don't steal stuff, I guess. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You should understand your doctrine, yes, and you should be confessing your sins, yes. Does that mean that you have to enumerate every single sin? Let them also be tested first. Yes, the congregation should know you as a deacon, and they should say, we approve of you being the leader of this house church, of course. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Hmm. According to whom? Because there are people that will use that verse and say that if you sin at all, you are no longer blameless, and therefore you are to be fired. Your wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So, ah, now, now deacons are responsible for their entire households the same way pastors are, right? Managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. My goodness, where is the confidence? If we see this list as the prerequisites for ministry and what determines whether you are disqualified. Now, 
I'm not saying this to discourage you, but to encourage you. I want to edify you. If you are serving in the catacomb synod, please bear with me. You will never feel qualified. When you look at the requirements, and one of them is to be blameless, my goodness, does that make us feel like crap? Because we're all sinners. We can't just stop sinning entirely in order to serve as a pastor, myself, and a deacon, you. You're never going to feel qualified if you look to this list as you being either disqualified or qualified based on your adherence to it. Perfect adherence. If that was the case, nobody could ever serve in the church. To the contrary, I want to encourage you and say, if God has called you to this ministry, then even if you are not perfect, according to this list, if you are not blameless, that's okay. Go to Christ, confess your sins, ask for him to restore and help and heal you. He can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And he is the one that gave us this standard, so we want to aspire to it. So, for someone like me, full disclosure, I get tempted to overdrink at times. My discipline over that has gotten better with time. But, that doesn't make me disqualified for the pastorate. By no means. Or being reproached by the world. Oh no, the world doesn't like me because I'm a Christian and because I have some maybe controversial beliefs or something. Okay. But does Christ himself reproach me? I go to him for forgiveness. I go to him for forgiveness of my sins. I'm open with my people that I help lead. I do my best. That does not disqualify me. And nor does it disqualify you, dear deacon, dear lay leader, for maybe some sin that you're struggling with. Could be that it's hard to be gentle with your children. It could be, like most young men, maybe you struggle with uh, pornography and you're doing your best to quit. Of course, that one you got to be really strict with. you got to fight that tooth and nail. But in Scripture, we must strive to fulfill these qualifications. You never rest on your laurels. We are pietists here at the Catacomb Synod, and we want to seek to obey greater and greater heights of God's commandments and to glorify him and to serve him and to see that reward that's promised here in 1 Timothy 3, a noble task for pastors to earn a good reputation before Christ as faithful servants. We want that. And we know we're going to mess up because guess what? Newsflash, pastors and deacons and elders and lay leaders, all of us are sinners just like the laity. But we want to do even more to clear that off, to, to go to God, to repent of our sins, to be as blameless as humanly possible, and to be strict with ourselves. You want to set that good example for the laity, for the people in your house church, as much as possible. You want to show them that it's good to have one less beer than you could. <laughs> something I've been working on over the years. It's good to be patient and to show your children 
obeying you, you being a patient and good leader with them, or hey, for guys like me that you know, I like karate, I like doing combat sports and everything, to show that I don't use that to get what I want. I don't have a short temper with people, I don't try to intimidate them, and I'm not trying to pick fights and arguments with people all the time. In fact, I try to lead them to the truth if there's a disagreement or a debate. So keep that in mind. These lists and everything, in your personal conflict that may or may not happen in the house church setting, whether or not there's a conflict or whether somebody doesn't like you, if they start bandying about that term, disqualified, go to the church. Go to your people and say, hey, here's what they're saying about me. Here's what is true about my sin that I confess, that I repent of, that I'm working on. Here is what is not true about it. And let's go forward from there. And let the church understand that you too are a human being, just like them. You're not justified by faith plus works. You're justified by faith alone. And yeah, there you go. Keep going towards what God wants us to be. Now, are there things that would disqualify entirely a pastor or a deacon from the pastoral office? Sure. Namely, false teaching. If somebody is teaching open damnable heresy from the pulpit, or if they're leading Bible studies and going gravely off the reservation and teaching something that could lead souls into perdition, then that man by definition is not being a Christian pastor. He is not able to teach the word of God. He is able to teach things that lead souls to hell. So an anti-Trinitarian pastor is by definition not even a pastor in Christ's church. That's a real disqualification. There are also times in which somebody is disqualified merely because the church should never hire somebody that has done what they did. You know, those who are in gross sexual misconduct and have some history of affairs or something like that, okay, dude, you're, no. We can't trust you to not try to harvest the women, so to speak. Or if somebody was a pedophile, somebody doing sexual misconduct with children, uh, such an individual should not be alive to be selected to be a minister. But then there's also cases where, you know, somebody has a murder on their rap sheet and somehow they're out of jail. Well, you can't trust that individual. Maybe they've repented. Good on them, right? There could be forgiveness for somebody who has committed murder, but you're not going to be a pastor. It's not safe, it's not prudent, it's not wise. Or somebody in impenitent, high-handed sin. Somebody in a state of mortal sin where they just don't give a damn that they're on their way to hell on account of their failure to repent, their failure to turn away from their sins. Well, such an individual, like say, I don't know, there are some infamous cases of pastors who cheated on their wives, broke up with them, and they cheated on their wives with a parishioner's wife. And then they get a new wife from there. And then they say, well, whatever. <laughs> I'm restored. You know, St. Peter was restored to his ministry. I can be restored to mine. And, and he did something worse than St. Peter did. Okay, such an individual, by definition, on account of their impenitent sin, is not 
a qualified minister. They're not even a pastor at that point. But if you, like me, are careful to fulfill what God's word says about us, what we should be doing, if you are doing your best to be better, to get better, well then by the grace of God, we are still in the office rightly. And we're going to trust in him, working out that part of our life with fear and trembling, continuing on and rejoicing that we have such a merciful God. Now, this is going to be the end of the catacomb practicals for a while. We are going to get back into catacomb synod basics at some point, probably in the near future. But can't wait to see you all for the next series coming up. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen. And amen.